Good morning to you all, and what a joy it is to be worshiping our Lord Jesus here with you today. Um, Wes didn't know this, but his prayer listed off so many different attributes of Jesus that I'm going to continue that a little bit in this introduction here. I want us to consider Jesus, and I want us to consider what He means to us. It's incredibly difficult, even, po- even impossible, to encapsulate Him in a singular word. But if I were to ask you to try to do that this morning, what would you think of? Because I think most of us, we would probably say things like, Lord, King, Creator, Savior, Redeemer, Prince. We'd say He's Almighty. We'd say He's the rock, the branch, the vine. He's Master, Priest, Prophet, Emmanuel, Teacher, Judge, Author, Cornerstone, Mediator, the Beginning, the End, Shepherd, the Way, the Truth, and the life. And none of those descriptors are wrong. None of them. As a matter of fact, they are amazing descriptors of Jesus. But if we're being honest, each of those individually on their own doesn't even scratch the surface when we begin to talk about our Lord Jesus. He is indeed all-powerful and He indeed deserves all glory. And I want to be careful to not take away from that this morning. However, our text today describes something about Him, something about His nature that I think we too easily forget about. If you would, please turn with me to chapter 12 in the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21, picking up from where we left off last week. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 817. And as you turn there, if you can recall, last week we discovered that the Pharisees were on a vendetta. Okay, They were on a vendetta plotting to kill Jesus after he had healed a man with a withered hand. And this angered them greatly because in their eyes and in their misunderstanding of the Old Testament... Jesus had just broken the law by doing this work on the Sabbath. They didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand his mission. And they certainly couldn't control him. So now they conspired to kill him. Let's read together from our text. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice In the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. 
Once again, Matthew has added another Old Testament reference by using this quotation from Isaiah. And you've heard us talk a lot about um, the book of Matthew and how he references and utilizes the Old Testament seemingly more frequently than the other Gospels. So, So what does that mean for us here? I think that means that Matthew is really trying to help us understand Jesus as the anticipation in whom the Old Testament was foreshadowing all along. And by utilizing Isaiah in this moment, the goal is to shine a light on Jesus as the fulfillment of the chosen servant of God. Not just as king, not just as lord, not just as prince, but as a servant. Why is Matthew pressing this narrative of Jesus as a servant? Let's explore that a little bit further. We'll get to verses 15 and 16 a little bit later, but I want to start at verse 17. Matthew shows us the understanding here that Jesus was sent as fulfillment. He was the purpose and the backdrop for which all the Old Testament was written. In many ways, the book of Matthew has guided us to understanding Jesus as the messianic son of David, the son of God, and with that comes many royal and militaristic interpretations of what the Messiah's role is or what the Messiah's role should look like. But Matthew, but Matthew, he understood Jesus also as the fulfillment of the prophecies of the suffering servant. And a reminder, just a reminder here, take note of this. That's not what Jews anticipated. That's not what the Pharisees were looking for in the Messiah. No, they, had an, they anticipated and expected the Messiah to ride in as a knight in shining armor. But... Behold, Jesus was not exactly that. He was not exactly what they expected. He lowered himself first to serve. This reference to Isaiah should help us understand the nature of Christ. If you would do with me a quick favor and turn to Isaiah 42. I know we have this reference in Matthew, but I actually want to look at Isaiah 42. It's on page 602 if you're using a pew Bible. Let's understand this reference from Isaiah a little bit further in its original context. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Now at first glance, You may notice that it reads slightly different than what Matthew records in his gospel, but the purpose and the meaning are the same. It doesn't change. 
And before we move any further, did any of you happen to read this in further context and look back at chapter 41, verse 29? Did you notice in that verse the first word? What is that word? Behold, right? Chapter 41, 29, it says, Behold. We see the conclusion of chapter 41 with the denouncing of the world's idols, calling them delusional, that they do nothing, that they are nothing. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. But then in chapter 42, I really just can't help but read this as an exclamation. But behold my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold. It's a stark contrast here between the two. And it's stark because these idols, these idols were made to be seen. These idols were made to be exalted. They were crafted with beautiful jewels and precious metals. They were elegant. Yet, the text here says that they're delusional. They are worthless. You move forward into chapter 42 right there, and we see the introduction of the servant who, in contrast with the idols, without pageantry and without apparent power, this new servant will ignite change resonating throughout the nations. This chosen servant of God stands also in stark contrast as a true and better servant than that of the nation of Israel in Isaiah 41 verse 9. The nation of Israel is depicted as a servant as well. And as the prophecy continues, we see the unfaithfulness and the distraction with idols of this servant nation, Israel. And we see God's displeasure with them is apparent. Later, in Isaiah 42.18, he calls that nation, that servant nation, death. He calls them blind. But this new servant of Isaiah 42.1 is faithful. In contrast with the servant nation, the servant individual doesn't lean on his own strength, but he is instead supported by God And God finds deep satisfaction in him. Matthew 3 echoes this language and this fulfillment there at the baptism of Jesus as the Spirit of God descends upon him saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This new servant, we're beginning to see the nature of him In verses 2 and 3, he's quiet and he's humble and he has a simple approach to handling conflict. This also stands in stark contrast to the kings and rulers who, when threatened, would tend to bow up, would beat their chest, return threat so that they could have their power or gain what they desire. That they would 
used that to enact their own justice on the lands. A, a king that was feeling threatened would assemble their army to show their force. And when prompted to do so, they would begin their assault to enact their will, crushing their enemies and rebuilding the way they would want through the force of their own power. But here, the servant is so far from, so far from using power and so far from using force to smash the mighty that he won't even break off the reed that is already bruised, that is already bent over or cracked. That's how gentle this servant is. This may be an absolutely terrible comparison, so my apologies ahead of time. But it's kind of like the complete opposite of the Incredible Hulk, right? The complete opposite. The Hulk will barrel towards his enemies, right? He will smash and flip cars, jump off of buildings and, and onto buildings, smashing glass, breaking roads, doing whatever necessary to complete his mission in defeating the enemy. Sometimes causing casualty to others in the process. Yet this servant of our text in the process of his mission is so gentle and so tender that he won't even break off the reed that's already bruised. Instead, he is its support. And he will straighten it. Sorry for that a terrible example. The text also tells us, though, that he will not puff out the smoldering wick. But rather, he's going to trim it and rest it more deeply in the oil. And, and this is God's answer to the oppressors of the world. It's, it's not more oppression. He's not going to extinguish those who are already oppressed. Nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. But rather, in quietness, humility, and simplicity, he will take all the evil into himself and return only grace. That is the real power. This servant individual here is also not like the smoldering wick that's already weary and nearly out, but we read and see that this servant is steadfast. This servant is strong. And I think verse 4 reinforces this point by saying he will not grow faint or discouraged. It shows, the servant's, it shows that the servant's gentleness should not be mistaken for weakness either. This servant will not lose strength, ever. And the language is sort of climactic here. In, in verse 1, it says, He will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3, He will faithfully bring forth justice. But then in verse 4, the language shifts. It changes, saying that He will continue without tiring until He has established justice on the earth. In the coastlands... Wait for his law. Now that's interesting. Wait just a second there. His law? I thought God was speaking here, not the servant. Has this servant usurped God? Has this servant taken over? Since when did the servant get the authority to establish his own law? And by what right does he have to do this? It's because this servant... This servant is actually of God. 
has the Spirit of God and is therefore able to speak for God. This servant has a different kind of relationship with God the Father that's different than the servant nation Israel. And unlike the servant nation, the servant individual's relationship is faithful to the will of the Father. And in doing so, the servant individual is entitled to instruct the nations in the way of the Lord. This is clearly different than the servant nation of Israel. This is a true and better servant. We also have to deal with this word wait. We have to deal with the word wait here. As I was reading more on this, I really loved what John Oswald had to say about it. He said, fundamentally, the word wait is used just as it's used elsewhere in the book of Isaiah. It is to turn away from one's persistent efforts in an act of unreserved dependence on God. Dependence so unreserved that it refuses to act on its own behalf no matter how long God seems to delay. I think Isaiah 40 verse 3 helps. It says, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's a perfect example there. It's a perfect example to help us understand this word because it shows that those who recognize their dependence on God turn away from all else until the coming of the Lord and they are richly rewarded for such. Here in our text, whether the nations know it or not, their only hope is to wait on the Lord. To end our time in Isaiah, I stole this next piece from Brett because he's not here and I just thought you might want to hear from him. No, but I, uh, I actually I use it because I think it provides us with a great conclusion to understanding this servant individual and servant nation here in Isaiah. Here, we should see that the servant individual embodies everything that the servant nation was supposed to be. The servant is Israel in as much as he functions like Israel. He's what you might call the true Israel, the ideal Israel. He's the ideal Israel not only because God shows his glory in him, but because he's going to spread God's salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what Israel was made for, to be blessed and to be a blessing to all the nations. And the servant here fulfills that role truly. You can see it kind of like this. God's servant nation failed in its mission. God chose one from among them to restore them. And upon this servant individual, the punishment for the sins of nations were laid. But who is this servant individual? Isaiah never knew his name. I'll give you one guess. Matthew knew his name. We know his name. His name is Jesus. It's no secret. Matthew uses this reference to Isaiah 42 to help us build up this understanding of Christ as servant. Going back to verse 15 of our original text in Matthew, let's discuss here 
why does Jesus withdraw from the situation? Clearly he knew in his divine knowledge that he was in danger of being captured and killed at that moment. But his ministry had not come to an end yet, and the hour of his death had not arrived either. Yet, in this departure, he still followed. Is he attempting to get away from just the Pharisees or from everybody? Matthew doesn't really indicate that here, but he does say that the crowds followed him. They desired to be with him, to hear from him, and to be healed by him. In other examples of Jesus withdrawing from somewhere, we see a regular occurrence of people inevitably finding him right after. Take Matthew 14, verse 13, for example, right? Jesus had just found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded. He had been murdered for the sheer entertainment and enjoyment of Herod's daughter. And despite knowing all that would transpire, imagine the grief that still came over Jesus upon learning about the death of his cousin, the death of his companion, and the one who prepared the way. And if you think that Jesus didn't deal with grief or anxiety or emotions of any kind because he already knew what was going to happen, I would really encourage you, though, to read through the toiling and prayer that Jesus persisted in at the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sorrowful and troubled and asking God if the burden of what he was about to do would be able to pass on from him yet he still did what was required of him. And you can't get out of that verse in chapter 14, verse 13, and on to the next verse without a crowd finding Jesus in that desolate place. You see this again in chapter 15, 21, where Jesus has just answered the Pharisees again, and he withdraws to Tyre and Sidon. And the very next verse is the Canaanite woman finding him and asking for healing for her daughter. So how does all that, how does all that apply to our text today? It gives us once again some insight into the very nature of Jesus. Just like in these examples, Jesus is immediately confronted by the needs of the crowd after withdrawing. If Jesus truly wanted to get away and never be seen again, he could have done it. That wasn't his nature. It wasn't his nature. His nature was to serve no matter the circumstances, no matter if his life is being threatened, no matter if he's just heard about the death of a close friend, no matter if he's about to be betrayed to hang like a criminal on a cross. He still gave of himself to the needs of the people and for the will of the Father. But why would he ask the crowds to not make him known? If you recall, we've seen this happen before back in chapter 8, verse 4, and chapter 9, verse 30. There's a few different reasons that we could explore and kind of bring this out further. But the clear purpose in this instance was to fulfill Scripture. Matthew pulls this quote from Isaiah to explain the purpose for Jesus' desiring to not be recognized. It shows us the type of Messiah that he is in contrast to those who would want to be seen and put in the spotlight. This type of Messiah had not come to bring glory to himself and showcase his mighty power, unlike other kings or false gods. In fact, he came in contrast to that. 
He came and lowered Himself to avoid such glory, even though He had every right to have all the glory. So Jesus would tell the people not to speak about Him at times. Not out of fear, but rather to stay out of the spotlight. Because at this point in Scripture, and at this point in history, Christ still had a wider mission that He needed to fulfill as that servant individual. Later though, after His resurrection, He would desire for that glory to be announced. By quoting this passage, Matthew answers many questions that we'll encounter here soon in the Gospel. Questions like, who is Jesus? Well, Isaiah clearly states He's the chosen, beloved, and well-pleasing servant of God. Another question might be, what's the source of His power? He's healing and performing miracles, and He has this power from the Spirit of God that rests upon Him. A third question might be, what does He do? Well, it says right here, He proclaims justice to the Gentiles and brings justice to victory. How is He going to do that? Well, He's going to do that by speaking and acting gently with compassion. You can see that there's a plot here for Him to be destroyed by the Pharisees, yet He withdraws to quietly continue His mission to be tender with those who are weak and needy, every bruised reed and every smoldering wick. And what is the scope? What is the scope here of His mission? Here in our text, his mission was to proclaim justice to the Gentiles, but later he would bring justice to victory, giving Gentiles hope. But what about this idea of justice? I haven't really tackled that. I've, I've kind of neglected that word, haven't I? I think it's important. The Hebrew word that is used here that we translate to justice depicts much more than just legal or judicial equity, right? We have a, we have a justice system in place, right? And that justice system is in place with the purpose of fixing a situation um, or, or, or trying to help somebody who has been wrong, to make something right that was wrong, We try to restore order and make things right once again, but even our justice system is imperfect. In the broader sense of this word justice, it involves a restoration to a social order in which everything is addressed, in which all matters are taken care of. It's to make right what has been wronged, From the moment of the sins from Adam and Eve in their fall until now, we cannot look to our left and we cannot look to our right without noticing that something is wrong. Something isn't right. There's corruption, scandal, lies, abuse, decay, and death around every corner. Our news feeds are filled with it. Our radios talk about it all the time. As a matter of fact, when we get up and we leave from here, we're probably going to talk to one another about how we've been dealing with sickness or our family's a mess or we're stressed out at work or we have financial problems. The list goes on. What are we to do? Is there any hope at all? Because something isn't right. But here enters Jesus 
Here enters Jesus, that servant individual from Isaiah. Here enters Jesus to bring creation back to its perfect order. Here comes Jesus to bring it back to functioning perfectly in accordance with the perfect design and will of the Lord. His justice is our salvation through the giving of Himself to take on sin, where we would be made right once again with God. And it is through this servant's work in His life on earth, His death on the cross, and His resurrection that God is now made effectively available to all. Brothers and sisters, do you see that something isn't right? Do you identify as a bruised reed or a smoldering wick? Because if you don't, then I would strongly encourage you to examine yourself more carefully. Because in truth, we all are apart from God. We must be like those in Isaiah who wait on the Lord, who recognize their dependence on Him. Maybe this morning you identify as a bruised reed. See, reeds, reeds were abundant everywhere. You, you could find them everywhere. So if for, for a reed to be bruised, it was absolutely worthless. There was, no, there was no purpose in it because you could just go right over and pick up another reed and use it to make your flute or your pen. It was worthless if it was bruised. Do you identify as that? Do you feel worthless? Do you feel helpless? Or do you feel hurt? Or maybe, maybe you're like the smoldering wick. You've gone on as long as you can. You've given everything you have and you've got nothing left in the tank. You're tired. You're weary. You're desperate. If either of those things are you today, then this text is good news. This text is good news because the servant individual is here. He's here to support and strengthen the reeds. And he's here to trim back the wick and rest it more deeply in the oil so it can continue burning bright. He is gentle to restore and gentle to not cause further damages. And it's not just that he's gentle, he's strong to take on your burdens as well. We often tire out and we grow exhausted in our failings, but Christ's mercy and grace is strong enough to keep us through the end. He will not stop in his tender loving care for us. That is the Christ that you are invited to come and know in this text. And let it serve as a reminder for you that your Savior cares deeply about you and about bringing you to restoration. He is not like this world that will chew you up and spit you out, but rather His gentleness and His peace will be what brings restoration to the weak. But there's also something to be said here about how we can learn and model our lives after Christ from this text. See, whether he was faced with friend or whether he was faced with foe, it didn't matter. He maintained the same spirit of peace and gentleness with all. 
And that's not easy to do, right? When someone says something that we don't like or we don't agree with, we feel like we have to respond immediately. You see that all over social media. It's full of immediate and thoughtless remarks and accusations. Ridiculous quarreling all over. When we feel threatened, we return with threat. But Christ gives us a very different picture of how to deal with opposition and how we should deal with opposition. Instead of striking down the Pharisees with the power that he does wield, that's, not, that's just not in his nature. That's not what he did here. Instead, in humility, he walks away to continue his mission in healing the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks. But why not? Right? Why not just go ahead and do away with the Pharisees right then and there? He could have done it, right? Because in the end, and in His perfect timing, He will have complete justice over all the earth. And we must remember that. He will reign supreme, and His justice will have been established with all things being made new, with all things being made perfect. For you and I, For you and I, we should learn to practice speaking and acting with others in simplicity, in gentleness, and in humility. We must not allow ourselves to be enticed to acting with the exact same temperament of the world. That's how the world conducts itself. As followers of Christ, we should be the ones who can give sweet words of comfort to those who are broken in spirit. That includes those who may revile you. That includes those who may slap your cheek. Because we must remember, too, that we're not any different. We're not any different. We, too, have been broken in spirit apart from the saving work of Christ. But we can also mimic Him in the way that He showed us how to be a servant, in how He lowered Himself. Perhaps one of my favorite examples of Him being a servant is John 13, when He goes and He washes the feet of the disciples. Right? And and I just, I cannot help myself. I identify with Peter so much. I identify with Peter because he sees his Lord coming to him, bent on a knee, about to clean his feet. That was the role of a servant. That was the role of a nobody. But this was Jesus doing it. And back then, I'm not sure if y'all know, feet got nasty back then. They didn't have boots. They didn't have socks. They didn't have closed-toed shoes. No. These feet were nasty. And Jesus got down And he cleaned the calloused feet that had been through the mud and the grime and the dung on the roads. He cleaned that. I can't help but think that I would have wanted to pull my feet away and said no. Because I really think I would have. But Jesus did it anyways. Not to mention he did it for Judas as well. He did it for Judas knowing that he was about to be betrayed. 
Perhaps to bring this to a close, I should just quote Jesus Himself from John 13. After Jesus was done, He put on His outer clothing and He went back to the table and He sat down and He said, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call Me Teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Church, may we make that our prayer this morning. May we make that our prayer that we would follow in the example of Christ and lower ourselves in service toward others. That was His mission. And one of the ways that we serve others is by following Him in that mission. Church, if you have experienced this restoration, if you have experienced this healing that comes from knowing the servant individual, that comes from knowing Jesus, then you have truly experienced a beautiful and a joyful wonder in your life. This salvation is not just reserved for you. There are many others as well who await the good news that need this same joy. And they may not know it yet. They, they're just like the Gentiles. They're just like the ones in the far off coastlands. They may not know it yet. But they hope and anticipate for something greater. Jesus is a servant to them and calls His people to join Him in mission to reach the nations. We see that in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. As His people... His mission is our mission that we must join in to fulfill. We were made like the servant nation Israel to be blessed and to be a blessing to others. Through Christ, the servant individual, we are restored and we can now do that more fully. Now, now we can take Him into the spotlight. He doesn't desire to be out of the spotlight anymore. We can put Him in the spotlight. And we can talk about Him and spread this good news to the nations and announce His glory. May we go do that. Serving gently. Doing so without quarrel. And following in the footsteps of this humble servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for this Word. It's richly blessed us today. May we understand it more richly and may it permeate our hearts, and may it permeate our minds to drive us to our knees in service towards those that are lost and needy as we follow the example of Your true and better servant, Jesus. This is your will. Amen. Amen.